Sunday morning, it was dark. No, I mean really dark, not just because it was early. It was a darkness I've never known before. A darkness that didn't just surround you and it crept into your soul and smothered it. I'd known dark times before, of course. I remember, though not clearly, the days of possession. The days when I didn't know what I was doing, what I was saying, where I was going. I didn't know who I was. But then that had changed. He spoke. And at his word, the darkness lifted. The shadow was gone, and I was a new woman. A new life was started, a life of adventure and discovery. A life where who I am was linked to who he was. And for the first time, the very first time, I knew that life had a purpose and a meaning. The Galilean countryside had never seemed so green. The lake, never so blue. The meals we all shared, there was fun and seriousness, joy and laughter. And the food, even bread, tasted better, fresher, lighter. And he spoke. Words of power and authority. Not always easy words, not always comforting words, but they burned They burned in your heart and in your soul, and you knew, I knew, I would never be the same again. So we came to Jerusalem. You should have seen the crowds, people from Bethsaida, Capernaum, everywhere in Galilee, crowds of people singing for joy as he entered the city. Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. We knew this was big. We knew that things were about to change and change forever. How couldn't they? We'd heard him speak, and we were changed. Jerusalem would hear him speak, and it would change. The world would change. There was no end to what we thought might happen. The next few days went by in a blur of anticipation and excitement, and then night fell. And the soldiers came, and we watched. Mary his mother and her sister and others, we watched, helpless, hopeless, as he was crucified. We stood there and watched, and we could do nothing. Where was Peter, Matthew, the others? Where were they? Only John stayed nearby. And in all of this pain and rejection, and suffering, Jesus spoke. He spoke words of comfort. Comfort to his mother. Words of love and concern as he hung there dying. And then he died in the darkness. He died. And as he spoke, as he died, he spoke. It is finished. I know the sun came out later, but it was still dark. Mary and I went with Joseph and Nicodemus to the tomb. We watched as they laid him on the shelf of rock, as they rolled the stone across the entrance, as the light went out forever. Three days go by. Three days 
of sorrow and anguish and anger. Yes, anger. Three days of pain and a bottomless pit of despair. Days of fear and nights with no rest. Then, the first day of the week. And it is so dark and early. I find myself on the path in the garden, walking to the tomb. Why am I there? Where else could I be? In the slowly breaking dawn, I see the tomb, but there's something wrong. The stone is gone. It's the right tomb. I know it's the right tomb, but something dreadful must have happened. And so I run. I run to Peter and to the others. Two of them run off to the tomb and they leave me behind. I can hardly move for fear and for confusion. I get there later than them. And Peter says the tomb is empty. The burial cloth just lying there. What's that supposed to mean? And then they walk away. They go home. They leave me all alone at the tomb. They go home. What am I going to do? What had happened? In that moment of emptiness and isolation, in the dark night of my soul, I wept. My heart just broke and I could do nothing else. I wept for lost hope, for broken dreams, for him, for me. Yes, it must have been for me. Never had I felt so alone. And then I looked up. Something made me go over to the tomb. Trembling, I looked inside and there were two men there. Where had they come from? They asked me why I was crying. Why was I crying? Because my Lord has gone. I don't know where he is. That's why I'm crying. My Lord has gone. I turned and there was another man there. The gardener, I thought. Perhaps he had moved Jesus' body, so I asked him. And then he spoke. Never has one word meant so much. He spoke. A voice of love and comfort, of majesty and power. He spoke. Mary. He just said my name. Like he knew me. Like my name meant something. Something beyond the ordinary. The normal, the physical. Mary. And in that moment, the sun rose. It rose in glorious red and yellow and orange. It rose in my heart and it banished the darkness. It flooded my soul with brilliant white light. It felt so real, so heavy I could almost touch it. This was Jesus. Not dead, no, no, not by any means, but alive. More alive than I had ever seen him before. More real than I had known before. Jesus, alive. My Lord returned. 
He spoke and it was breathtaking. He spoke and I was filled with joy and wonder. I was filled with songs of hope and excitement, with peace. He spoke and I was filled with purpose. I wanted to go and tell everyone right away. And so I speak. I sing, I shout. Jesus is alive. The Lord is risen. Thank you, Sam, or Mary, uh, also known as Sam. Uh, Good morning. He is risen. It's good to be with you guys, and uh, especially on this Sunday. And this Sunday is, uh, yeah, it's the reason why SunWest uh, exists. Uh, And if it weren't for this Sunday, uh, we would be crazy. But if this Sunday is actually true... Uh, and this is what Paul said in, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians. He said, I'd, I'd be crazy unless it's true. If it's true, then it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Uh, and I don't know where you're coming from uh, in your story and what you're walking in with. And if you, if you come suspicious of the gospel story, uh, maybe you're someone, you're here with a friend or you're here with your family or tuning in on, online. And, uh, and you maybe believe that this is just a myth, that this is just a legend uh, that some uh, people in the first century came up with uh, to comfort themselves um, at the loss of a friend or for a, another motive or another reason. I want you just for a minute to assume that this actually did happen. That 2,000 years ago, uh, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. I want you to uh, just assume that for this morning. Uh, I want you to remember that 2,000 years ago, he had a number of followers, that Jesus had followers that were so convinced that he was resurrected from the dead that they would rather give up their lives as martyrs in death and torture. They would rather give up their lives than to deny the truth of what they'd seen. This is how how, uh, foundational this belief was to them. They, They believed it to the core of their being. They're willing to give their lives for it. And so I want to visit this, this account in a moment. Uh, and this account, uh, even if it is true, uh, it still doesn't answer the next question. Because uh, if it is true, then what does it have to do with today? What does the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago have to do with today? We look around the globe and we see all sorts of problems. We, we see war. We see strife. We see fighting. Uh, we see disease and pandemics. Uh, we see lies and manipulation. There's pain. And this is an event that happened 2,000 years ago. So what, what does that have to do with, with today? How is one event 2,000 years ago going to solve the billions of problems that we have in our world? And that's a valid question. But maybe we're looking at it from the, one, from the wrong perspective. Let's assume there's 8 billion people in the world. And we could either think, well, what does that resurrection have to do with, uh, with every problem that those 8 billion people have? Let, let's just assume everybody has one problem. Okay. I mean, I have at least three. I got three boys. Uh, but let, let's, let's assume that everybody has one problem. So there's at least 8 billion problems in the world. Uh, what does that one event have to do with 8 billion problems? Well, perhaps there's actually one problem in the world that Jesus solves 8 billion times. 
Perhaps there's actually a foundational something that has gone wrong in our world that the resurrection speaks to. And if you've been following along at Sunos, we've been doing this, uh, this series called The Shalom Project. And we're on week 16 now. And don't worry, if, you haven't mi- if you've missed all 16 of the weeks, it's okay. Um, it all comes together this morning anyways. I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, great. I sat through 15 weeks just to know that I could have come on Easter Sunday. Um, <laughs> but the Shalom Project is something we've been talking about. The word Shalom is not an English word. Uh, it's a Hebrew word. Uh, in, in, in our Bibles, in the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, uh, it's often uh, translated as peace. But when we think of peace, we think of the absence of conflict. But the word shalom in Hebrew means so much more than that. The word shalom in Hebrew means uh, the harmony of all things. The harmony in this world the way that God intended. And when God created the world, we see that there's harmony uh, in all four relationships. And God's relationship with humanity and humanity's understanding of themselves and their identity. In the relationship with The other, with other humans, Adam and Eve, their relationship with the world, that there was order. When God created the order, if you read the Genesis 1 account, God created order out of chaos, and he brought things together. He brought unity. He brought harmony. He brought shalom. We look at the end of our scriptures, and we see that the end of the scriptures also give us a picture of shalom, that God has restored all things. He's renewed all things. He's brought all things back together. And that's Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22. And then all the chapters in between in your Bible tell us what went wrong in God's Shalom project and what he's going to do about it. And so we go back to the creation story. God created everything in the right relationships the way it was supposed to be. There was a right order to creation that God had created humanity. Humanity was going to, to rule over the rest of creation and humanity was unique because it said, the scriptures say that humans were made in the image of God. And to be made in the image of God means that we have the capacity and the will to create. We can decide. We can create. We were created to create because God is our creator. We were made in his image. And we have the potential to actually create good, to create what is beautiful. We also have the potential to create what is evil and what is destructive. And because humans at the beginning of the biblical story listened to a voice other than God's voice, they decided to live their own way. Now, the Bible refers to this as sin, and all of sin is basically uh, shalom breaking. We see that Adam and Eve decided to go their own way and break shalom with God. And the result of that decision not to listen to God actually had an impact in every direction. It broke relationship with God. It broke uh, their uh, understanding of themselves. They didn't know who they were. They lost the sense of identity and whose they were. They started infighting and there was conflict and blaming, scapegoating. Even creation suffered because of the choice that Adam and Eve made. But the name Adam in the beginning of the scriptures is the, he, is the Hebrew word for Adam, which means humanity. And when we read the story, we recognize that it's not just a story about Adam, it's also a story about us. It's a story about us as human beings. And whether you're somebody of faith or you're not somebody of faith, there tends to be a general agreement right now as we look at the world around us that people say, this isn't the way things ought to be. Things should be different. I wish things would be different. And even people who are, uh, don't articulate any type of faith 
will say those types of statements, particularly in the last few years. And those statements themselves are actually a statement of faith. It's a statement of hope. It's a statement of some foundational belief that we have as humans that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And God agrees with that. Jesus agrees with that. The gospel story is God's response to that reality that something is broken, that shalom has been broken, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And so Jesus comes, God with flesh on, to make things right. So we pick up the story in John chapter 20. Uh, We heard uh, the story recited in narrative form from... uh, from Mary. And Mary, Mary Magdalene was the first person to meet Jesus after his resurrection. Uh, and it, we know some details about who Mary is. If you look in Luke chapter 8, we know that Mary uh, was someone who had seven demons in her that were cast out of her. Uh, and the, the number seven was actually very significant. Uh, in the culture at the time, and, and seven is often used to talk about uh, completeness. And so you could say that Mary was completely insane. She was completely evil. She was completely overtaken by evil. Jesus shows up, and he casts out these seven demons. He, he heals her. He restores her. He gives her purpose. He gives her life. He gives her meaning. And so she becomes one of Jesus' followers, she becomes one of Jesus' larger group of disciples, part of his ministry team. And so she's uh, getting to know Jesus. And Magdalene wasn't her last name. It just simply refers to the place where she was from, Magdala. So it was Mary from Magdala. Uh, and so we don't know tons of details about her background. Other than that, the church tradition uh, for a long time has kind of stood on this idea that Mary was, um, was a prostitute. Uh, And we can't say that for certain, but what we do know for certain is that she came from a very broken place. She was someone who would have been rejected by society. She was someone who would have been seen as insane and evil. And Jesus met her in that place. He healed her, and then he called her to a new new type of life. And so that's the background of Mary. And so she's been one of Jesus' followers, and she shows up in John 20 where it reads, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and the one Jesus loved that's referring to John, uh, and John is writing this account. Uh, so John refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. Uh, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter And the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, started to the tomb, and both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Uh, This is one of my favorite parts. You know, know, John tells the story. He gives us an account of of Jesus and the way that he's... uh, the way that he's bringing the gospel and salvation to the world, and also that I'm really fast. There's a 1A, there's a 1B motive here. Uh, and so, you know, this is really about Jesus, but it's kind of partly about me. I'm amazing, I'm fast. Um, and uh, he puts it down in scripture so that we'll remember for all of history how fast John was. Uh, and so he outran Peter, he got to the tomb first, and he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And what's really interesting, before we just keep going on with the story, is that uh, the word looked and saw here, they're actually uh, two different words in the original language. Uh, the first word is the word blepe, which means uh, that your retinas work, that you're looking and you see what's happening. The second word that's uh, being used, theoreo, is the word that means to wrestle and to contemplate. And so Peter and John have this moment where they observe what's happening, and then they have another moment where they're forced to wrestle with what's happening. What does this mean? And even as we gather, some of us might be familiar with the Easter story, and we're familiar, we've seen it or we've heard it. We know the details, but perhaps this is the moment where we actually wrestle with what is happening. And we ask the question, what does this mean? And what they're observing when they say, what does this mean, is that they're looking at Jesus, uh, his grave clothes that would have been wrapped around him, and they see the linens there, that, and it says they're folded, and it actually says that three times in the text that they're folded. And the word here uh, actually means uh, not lying there, but folded, like I said. That Jesus actually got up, took his grave clothes off, and he folded them and like set them aside. Like, that's interesting. You know, so they're looking at this, they're observing them, they're wrestling. What would this mean? What does this, what does this mean? You know, I got, I got these uh, pair of sweatpants that I wear uh, when I relax at home. Anybody got that pair of sweatpants you put on when you get in the doors at home? Okay, um, maybe it's just me. But I get home, you know, I want to get out of my work clothes, and I put on these sweatpants. And, and then when I go to bed at night, I leave, I shouldn't be telling this, but I leave my sweatpants right at the base of my bed because I'm going to put them on the next morning. And I, I get up, put them on the next morning, and I go. I find it significant um, because uh, when, G, when, when Jesus, when my wife Lisa doesn't want me to keep wearing the same clothes, she puts them away. She folds them, she puts them away. And I got boxes in the basement of, of clothing that she's folded and put away because I'm never supposed to wear them again. Uh, and I think here we have Jesus. He didn't just take off these grave clothes. He didn't just take them off and was going to put them on Later, he was never going to put them on again. The significance of the resurrection is that Jesus folded them and he put them away. And this startles John and Peter as they're looking at the tomb. They're wrestling with what this means. What could this mean? Where did Jesus go? Where's his body? And it continues. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, just in case you forgot, I'm really, really fast. Um, Also inside, he saw and believed They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary, Mary Magdalene, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned 
toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. What a beautiful moment in the story where Mary hears her name spoken by the divine, by God with flesh on, and her eyes are opened. And we don't know why Mary didn't recognize Jesus at first, why she thought he was a gardener. But what we see in the story of Mary, I think, is what's true for all of us, is that we don't find ourselves by trying to find ourselves. We find ourselves by finding the risen Christ. We live in a world that tells us we need to find our own identity and figure out who we are. But the truth is that nobody can name themselves. I sincerely believe this, and the Bible teaches this, that everyone gets their name and their identity from outside of themselves. We don't figure out who we are. God has actually told us who we are. And we spend our lives trying to get careers to name us, trying to get money to name us, trying to get success and accomplishments and trying to form our own uniqueness and our own identity. But what makes us unique, what makes us beautiful, what makes us eternally significant and valuable is because our good father created us and named us. And Mary shows up on the scene She doesn't recognize Jesus until Jesus speaks her name. And then her eyes are opened. She's brought into reality. You must find yourself to lose yourself, is what Jesus said before this. Mary finds herself not by trying to find herself. Mary finds herself because she found the risen Christ. And maybe you're tuning in and listening this morning, trying to figure out who you are. I believe that we live in a world full of anxiety because we have believed a lie that we need to figure out who we are. We have a pandemic of anxiety going on in our culture. It's well documented among counselors and sociologists that there's a pandemic of anxiety going on. But we also live in in a culture that's denied any outside voice that can tell us who we are because we believe that we got to figure out who we are. It is so freeing. It is so freeing to know that we have a Heavenly Father who speaks our name. And when He speaks our name, that name gives us identity and that name gives us purpose. We have identity and we have purpose because God has named us. And so, Mary Magdalene, when we think of her story, she was on the outside of every outside, inside category you could think of. She was a woman, not a man, which was. Uh, significant in that culture. She was poor. She was not middle class or upper class. She was deranged. She was insane. She was demon-possessed. She was not sane. She was immoral, not moral. She was on the outside of every category. And here we have the gospel in this moment that she is the one that Jesus chooses to reveal himself to. And we realize that the gospel... The good news of Jesus is not based on merit, it's not based on pedigree, it's not based on race or class or accomplishments or your career or your gender or whatever we might think makes us accessible to God. What makes us accessible to God is actually the posture of searching for him humbly. And in Jesus, in, in Mary, we actually see that gospel in a beautiful, profound, and simple way. Mary, who was on the outside, is now in a position of honor and intimacy. And Jesus picks this person, this outcast, to be the first preacher of the gospel. 
And by the way, this is why many scholars believe that the gospel accounts couldn't be made up, is because if you were trying to convince somebody of a legend or a myth, you wouldn't pick an outcast like Mary to be the one that proclaims the resurrection story. God chooses the Marys of this world because they help us to see most clearly the good news of the resurrection. By doing this, God actually encourages every Mary. If you can identify with Mary being on the outside looking in, feeling like you're not good enough, feeling your past haunts you, Mary reminds us that Jesus, when he calls us and speaks our name and invites us into a relationship with him, he does that because he loves us, not because of anything we've done or haven't done, but because he created us to be his. And so Jesus said to Mary, do not hold on to me, for I have not ascended to the Father. And do not hold on to me literally means don't cling to me. Uh, the, the original language is like, like Mary is clinging to her. It's like, ouch, stop, stop touching me. <laughs> it's almost how it's trans, it should be translated. What Jesus is saying is that if you cling to me, uh, you're going to be disappointed because I'm going away and I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. If, if, you, uh, if you cling to me and I stay here, there's a level of intimacy that you're not going to experience. But if I go from here, I'm going to send my Spirit to you and you will always have me with you. I'm going to give you something beyond my bodily presence. I'm going to give you my actual presence. My Holy Spirit will come to you to encourage you, to comfort you, and actually to live in you, to be present with you. So don't cling to me because what I started isn't yet finished. I've not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had seen these things, uh, he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And so when he showed them his side, when he showed them his hands, he's not showing them his pedicure. He's not saying, hey, check out how nice my hands are. What he's showing them is his scars, He's showing them his scars. And at this point, there's something really amazing that we need to pay attention to, that the resurrection of Jesus did not undo his past. Did not undo his painful experiences, but they rewrote the story. The scars that were meant to be marks of defeat were actually marks of victory in the resurrection. And we have to understand that the resurrection... I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but the resurrection is a foretaste of the future of what is going to happen to those who are in Christ, those who have put their faith in him. And the resurrection reminds us that whatever pain that we've gone through in our lives, whatever disappointment, whatever hurt, whatever loss, whatever death, that those things are actually going to make the joy and glory of resurrection even more beautiful that we will be able to retell our stories to one another on the other side of death and celebrate the victory of what God has done. And Jesus shows them his scars, not because he's reminding them of his defeat, but because he's telling them of his victory. 
that the God has rewritten the story. When you saw me go to the cross, they were all disappointed. They were all hurt. They all left. They all fled. They all, uh, they were all left in darkness. They thought that was the end of the story. And Jesus comes and says, what you thought the end of the story is actually just the beginning of the story. Let me show you my scars. What were, mar- what were once marks of defeat were now marks of victory. And so Jesus, uh, and it says again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Every time Christ appears in his post-resurrection, he comes with the word peace. Now, if you've been following for the last few weeks, you know that the word peace is not just the absence of conflict, but it's something much different. When Jesus speaks the word peace, he's using the Greek word arene, which is the Greek word for shalom in Hebrew. The post-resurrection Jesus is saying shalom is with you. That the thing that you've been longing for, the thing that, that you're looking at when you're saying this is not right, it shouldn't be this way. When you thought all was lost on Good Friday, I come to you in resurrection and I say this is the beginning of shalom. This is the beginning of me putting all things back together. Now if you read the gospel of John, where the story is taken from, you'll start to notice a couple of things if you read carefully. John is always telling a story, and it has meaning on the first primary level, but he's always telling a story in a way that is painting a very, very much a deeper picture. There's a deeper story going on. And John is very interested throughout his gospel in the ideas of creation, of God doing something new the way he did something new in the beginning. In Genesis 1, verse 1 to 2, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Genesis 1 talks about how God created order out of chaos. Genesis 1 talks about how there was darkness and God brought light. How God was creating something new and something beautiful. John starts his gospel in John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In John chapter 1, John is giving his own uh, recollection. He's he's actually giving us the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. And he's saying, in the very beginning, Jesus was there. Jesus is the word made flesh, which he says in John 1.14. Jesus is the word become flesh. In the beginning, Jesus was there. He, he was God. He was making the world. He was actually bringing order out of chaos. He was bringing light into darkness. He was making all things work together the way they were supposed to work together. And he wanted to work, them to work together. And so John starts his gospel that way because he wants us to see that there's another creation happening. There's a new creation that's about to happen. And so we see the beginning in Genesis 1. We see the beginning in John 1, 1. And we know that in the creation account in Genesis, what happened over seven days, we learned that every single day there was something significant that happened. Day one, day two, day three. God is creating and he's bringing order out of chaos. 
And so if you look at Genesis' account, you can see what happened on the first day of the week and the second day of the week and the third day of the week. And then we go to John's account, and in John chapter 20, there's an interesting line. He says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. John is saying that there's a type of disorder and chaos and confusion that was existing in the world Friday and Saturday. But he's bringing something out of chaos. And this is the first day of the week. This is the beginning of a new creation. He's bringing us back to this creation order of God bringing order out of chaos. Now, if you work your way backwards from the first day of the week, what do you have the day before the first day of the week? Yeah. Yeah, good. Like, oh, that's a trick question. No, the seventh day of the week. And on the seventh day of the week, what did God do on the seventh day of the week? If you know the creation story, he rested. Oh, yes, thank you. Uh, he rested on the seventh day of the week. And so, uh, and we, we read in Genesis so the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in, in them was completed. And on the seventh day, God had finished the work of creation. So he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. So you go to the passion story, the crucifixion narrative, and what is Jesus doing on the seventh day of the week? He's silent. He's resting in the tomb. He's resting. And if we go back one more day in the creation story, to day six, Genesis, in Genesis it says on day six, it says that God had finished his work. He completed his work. And you go back to day six in John's new creation story, what's happening in the Gospels, and it says when he had received this drink, Jesus says, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We see another echo of creation, that Jesus is finishing a work on the cross. When Jesus breathes his last, before he goes to rest in the tomb, he says it's finished. John wants us to see that something new is happening, that God's not being defeated. He's bringing order out of chaos. And who remembers what God created on the sixth day of the creation account. Does anybody remember what he created? Humanity. He created humanity. He created Adam or Adam in the Hebrew, which, is, which means human. And if you go back to John's new creation account, on the sixth day, it says, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. Jesus presented as the new Adam. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul says Jesus is the new Adam, that there is a new creation that is happening because of what Jesus has done. He's the beginning. Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity, a new way of living. And if you've been following the Shalom Project series, you'll remember that God created humanity for a purpose. In Genesis 2.15, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to care for it. He created humanity to create, to rule, to reign. He created us with a certain purpose and reason for living. And as we return to the story of Mary, 
you remember what Mary mistaken, who Mary mistaken Jesus for? A gardener. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was a gardener. What does a gardener do? A gardener takes care of creation. John sees Jesus as the beginning of a new way of living, as the beginning of new life, the beginning of a new creation project. And now we come full circle back to our John 20 text. In Genesis, after Jesus, Jesus formed Adam from the dust, what did he do? What did God do to give Adam life? It says he breathed his breath, and breath in Hebrew is the same word for life. He breathed his life into Adam. Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And at the end of John 20, we see that the Sunday evening, on the evening of the first day of the week, the beginning of a new creation, he said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And so he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. See, John wants us to know that the word through whom all things were made in the beginning is the word through whom all things are remade in the resurrection. Jesus, who was there in the beginning, who brought order out of chaos, is actually there 2,000 years ago bringing order again out of chaos. Jesus is doing for humanity what humanity couldn't do for themselves. Jesus is taking all of the shalom breaking that has happened throughout history and he's crucifying it on the cross. And what looks like death, what looks like the end of the story is only the beginning of a new creation story. Many of us see and understand the gospel the Easter weekend to be about how God has saved us and brought us back into relationship with himself, and that is true. That was the story of Mary. But it's also about how God is renewing and restoring all things. In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus uses this interesting Greek word to talk about what he's doing, what he's, a, what he's about. And the word is, well, it doesn't really matter what the word is because I can barely pronounce it, but the word means in Matthew 19, 28, the renewal of all things. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is coming. Colossians chapter 1, it says, God was pleased through Christ to reconcile the world to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, by making shalom through Christ's blood shed on the cross. Salvation is a restoration project, not an evacuation project. The Shalom Project is about God actually putting everything back together. When we look around at the world right now and we say, things aren't supposed to be this way, God says, amen, I agree, and I've done something about it. I'm putting order back to chaos. I'm bringing Shalom to what was broken. What Jesus is actually giving us is hope. See, the resurrection wasn't the end of the story. It was the beginning of a new story. And in the same way in our lives, resurrection, when we die to ourselves, as Christ died to himself, we actually begin a new story. What Jesus is giving us is hope. What the Bible calls hope, and I know the word hope is not in the text, but this is what's happening. The shalom, the peace of the future is being guaranteed. Jesus saying, look at my resurrection. You can have confidence that what has happened to me is what is going to happen to the world. We think of hope as something that you only have when you're not sure about it, right? But this is not the way that the Bible uses the word hope. The Bible uses the word hope in the sense that there is something that you can have confidence that something is coming, but it's not quite here yet. 
And this changes how we live in the present. So I want you to imagine with me two people having the same job. Some, uh, somebody offered the, these two women the same job, and it was going to be a very boring job, very mundane job. Uh, day after day, they were going to work the same job over and over and over again, and the job was supposed to be 80 hours a week. Hard job. To one person, they were offered $15,000 at the end of that year. To the second person, they were offered $15 million. Everybody say $15 million. Uh, they were offered $15 million at the end of that year. Now, I want to ask you, how does the future promise of what's happening impact how both of those people live in the present? I mean, the person who's going to get paid $15,000 a year, you could see them grumbling, showing up at work, complaining, this isn't quite worth it. Why am I doing this? Uh, This makes no sense. What's the purpose? I bet you if you contrast with that with the person who's going to receive $15 million at the end of the, the year, they're living differently. You know, they're whistling on their way to work. Yeah, the 80 hours a week, it sucks. But they're doing it because they know with absolute confidence that it's going to be worth it. See, the resurrection narrative tells us that we can have confidence of what waits us, and it gives us perspective in the present. If you choose to put your hope in Jesus and his resurrection, if you believe that what happened to Jesus will happen to you, and if you believe what happened to Jesus is actually what's going to happen to the world when God makes all things right, it changes the way that you live in the present. It changes the hope that you have. It changes your identity and how you understand yourself and who you understand yourself to be. And the resurrection narrative changes how you understand your purpose and why you're here. When we understand that God is in the midst of bringing shalom Part of the reason he calls us and he says our name is because he wants us to partner with him in what he's doing in the world. Jesus spoke the name Mary, and it changed everything. I can remember when God spoke my name. I was a little boy at a camp, and I heard him speak my name. And although I didn't realize it at that moment, me responding and turning and seeing Jesus and accepting him into my life was going to change the trajectory of my life and the trajectory of my eternity. I wonder if some of you this morning can hear Jesus speaking your name. I can remember Sam, who was Mary uh, in the, in the uh, whatever, the reading earlier. Uh, I remember 12 years ago, we were on a Mexico trip. Um, I didn't know her from Adam or Eve, and she, uh, we were stuck in Des Moines, Idaho, and the whole trip had gone sideways. We were caught in a snowstorm. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be this way, <laughs> and we had, we were stuck in the middle of nowhere in Idaho with nowhere to go, nowhere to stay. We had 120 kids, and we just called up a local church. And we said, hey, we got 120 people. We don't know where to stay. Can we stay in your church? And they all let us crash in the church. And so we all stayed there. Uh, and that gave us an extra night together on that, tr- on that particular trip uh, about a dozen years ago. Uh, and I remember talking about the gospel in that uh, church. And I remember Sam was there. Uh, she didn't grow up in church. Uh, this was new to her. And she heard in that moment God say her name. 
And she responded to Jesus, and it changed the trajectory of her life. I want to invite you this morning, I invite you to close your eyes for a minute. And there might be some people here um, that have maybe heard God saying their name this morning. Inviting them into relationship, inviting them into a new way of living. Inviting them to put their hope and their faith in Jesus. To trust that what Jesus has done means that what happened to him will happen to you. That you can have hope beyond death, hope beyond fear, hope beyond whatever might be going on in this world that Jesus says, there's a different story I'm writing and I want you to be a part of it. So with their eyes closed, I just want to invite you, if, if you're someone who feels like you're hearing God call your name this morning, I invite you to just respond to him by raising a hand. Jesus, I hear you speaking my name. Yeah, you just raise a hand. Yeah. I hear you speaking my name, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. And if you're someone who is responding to Jesus for the first time, I would encourage you to come forward at the end of service. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, you can, or you can connect with one of the pastors on staff. We'd love to connect with you and what that means for next steps. And I also want to remind us that what Jesus is doing is not just giving us identity and inviting us to a saving relationship with him, but he's giving us new purpose. And maybe you've been overcome by stress, by anxiety, by fear, by worry, by pain, by loss. And this Easter morning is the invitation back to purpose, the invitation back to hope the reminder that the story that God is writing isn't yet finished, and he has a purpose for you now. I want to invite you to stand with me as we celebrate what Jesus has done. Jesus, we thank you that you are making all things new. We thank you that you have a shalom project that you've invited us to be a part of. We thank you that you haven't just saved us, but you've given us a new identity and a new purpose and meaning. Lord, I pray for each person in this place, Lord, for the places where we feel disappointed, the places where we feel lost, the places where we look at things in our life and the world around us and we say it's not supposed to be that way. Lord, I pray that you would infuse us with your Holy Spirit, that you would breathe your Holy Spirit into us to give us new perspective, that we would see again. Lord, that we wouldn't just see things through the lens of this world, but we would see things through the lens of your resurrection. Lord, that we would have profound faith and hope. That we would be a foretaste of what you're going to do in the future. Lord, we thank you that you are not done working in us or in this world. Lord, we are so desperate for you to make things new again. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come into our lives. Come, Lord Jesus, come into our world. Lord, may we live... In light of your resurrection hope, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let me just ask you one question. How many of you over the last few years uh, felt like uh, you've experienced some level of loss and disappointment? 
Bible tells us that the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Easter tells us that the enemy doesn't get the last word. And I know because of the gospel that whatever loss that we've had, whatever grief we've had, whatever disappointment we've had, whatever thing we think can't be undone and unwritten, the Bible tells us that there's hope that it can be rewritten. And I also know because of the resurrection and the scars of Jesus that God rewrites our stories, even the most painful parts of our stories. And you can live with that hope today. I I know for, for me, when I've experienced, when I've been distant from my wife or my kids or those people that I love the most for whatever reason, when I get back together with them, being together with them is that much more glorious and joyful and beautiful because of the distance that we experienced. And I look forward to when God finishes Shalom Project and all of our losses, all of our grief, all of, our, all of the things that we thought uh, had the last word, that moment is going to be even more beautiful and powerful because, because we went through pain, because we went through loss, because we experienced despair. But the beauty and the resurrection has something to speak because we've gone through those things. And so I look forward to the day, friends, when we will celebrate with Jesus when the Shalom Shalom Project is all done with you and we can look back and say, huh, look how God rewrote that. Look what God has done. May we live with that hope in mind in the present. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have risen. We thank you that you rewrite history, you rewrite stories. Lord, may we be people that are a foretaste of what you are doing. May we live with resurrection hope. May we die to ourselves and hear you speak our name and respond to you with newfound purpose and identity because of what you've done. So, Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you for what you've done. We want to follow you. We want to love you. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is with us, that your presence is with us. Wherever we are, whatever we're walking through, Lord, you have not left us. You have not forsaken us. And so we draw near to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great Sunday. And we'll see you next week.